I'm Spencer Levy, and this is The Weekly Take. On our last episode, we went shopping to kick off the holiday season. A detailed review of trends in retail today, in stores and online, and an outlook for tomorrow. Now we offer a compliment to that conversation. On this episode, we flip the script from the occupier's point of view to the landlords in part two of our retail series. Every day is a, a new treasure hunt for the consumer. That's Brian Harper, president and CEO of RPT Realty, one of the largest publicly traded retail REITs in the country. RPT's holdings focus on open-air retail with some 70% anchored around a grocery store tenant. Headquartered in New York City, RPT's properties stretch from the east coast of the U.S. to the Rocky Mountain region. You have to make it worthwhile to get your consumer out from in front of the computer and into your store. And that's Lisa Stoddard, a CBRE Executive Vice President based in our Washington, D.C. office. Lisa brings more than 25 years of perspective on this area with a focus on large format, mixed use, and street-level retail. She advises on investment strategies for deals around the region and nationwide. In a conversation we recorded just after the traditional start of the holiday shopping season, we discussed the early returns and changes in a sector that's on the rebound after the pandemic. We also get into formats, consumer behavior, and the idea of shopping as a treasure hunt, and more. Coming up, the only item you need on your shopping list, the investor's perspective of the retail sector. That's right now on The Weekly Take. Welcome to The Weekly Take. It's great to have both of you today, the peak retail selling season of the year. And frankly, the news has been pretty good. Uh, Brian, what are you hearing on that front? Numbers look good. Uh, traffic uh, looks good across mall and open air. So I'm optimistic that they will come out pretty darn good. Lisa, what are you hearing? Same. I mean, to see the in-store sales up 43% for Black Friday. But I think one thing that's worthy of note is um, that's just a day and it's a season now. Black Friday is important but not as much as in the past. I think it's a whole season and this year stretched out even longer. I think 60% of people said they started their holiday shopping pre-Thanksgiving. So I think the numbers overall for the season will be even more impressive. Well, it's good to hear good news, but there are some certainly clouds on the horizon that are giving concern. One of them is with respect to inflation and the pressure on the consumer because of that. Brian, how does that factor into your thinking? The concern I have on inflation really depends on what kind of retail, essential versus discretionary per se. Higher inflation rates do erode purchasing power, obviously. But the focus for me has been on really providing our consumers with service, essential-based retailers mixed with a little bit of experiential that will thrive in, in any environment and being less focused on 100% discretionary. It's it's a blending of both. The good news is that saving rates for Americans was at an all-time high during the pandemic. And so they're spending. That's the good news. I think, as Brian said, it's going to be the type of retail that you have. And value retail probably does even better. And the experience side being even more important than ever before to round it up. Well, Lisa, I think with since you used that word experience... Give us a flavor for how the in-store 
experience is changing, whatever the retailer is doing from both a structural standpoint, changing the design of the store, and from a strategy standpoint, changing how they mix up their goods and experience. You have to make it worthwhile to get your consumer out from in front of the computer and into your store. We've talked about Nike. They start that customer engagement. Their brand, it reaches you before you ever get to the store. Lululemon doing their yoga classes either somewhere on site. Anything that has the customer engagement, the way it's displayed, that you feel special when you're in there as luxury tenants do so well. Anything that pulls the customer in and makes them stay as well. One of the terms that we used to use, Brian, for why do people go to big box retailers is the treasure hunt. How important is that still to the retail experience? It's very important. I think someone coined it surprise and delight a few years ago. And the treasure hunts, when you look at, especially the off price or the larger format retailers, every day is a new treasure hunt for the consumer. They're getting in goods mostly every day, uh, and they want to be the first to get that deal, right? So I think having those treasure hunts is a great foundation for retail success for those retailers. One thing I would add is carefully curated stores. So my favorite gift shop in Washington, D.C., Dalton Brody, it's a uniquely curated, I can't get it online, I know I can go there and knock out gifts. It's one-on-one experience, and then it's gift-wrapped and send you out the door from soup to nuts, um, the customer experience. We've talked a lot about different retail formats, and Lisa, you are an expert in all of them, as is Brian, and mixed use is becoming an increasingly important format where retail isn't just a retailer, but maybe the most important amenity for the other asset types, multifamily, office. How much has retail evolved to be an amenity to to the others versus its own asset class. It's an amenity to everything. Many times retail will drive the value of what's above, sometimes even more so than on the ground level. It creates that special place, that special environment, especially as you look outside of the urban markets and suburban locations that have really become second cities in some cases to create that urban fabric with all those amenities, but more importantly, creating special places. And it's places that you and I want to be and go to, and that helps drive the overall mix. I think it's both now more than ever. I mean, first, it all comes down to the real estate and doing the void analysis of how do we achieve the best IRR for that asset or for that piece of real estate. A lot of times it will be retail. A lot of times it will be both. We're doing a number of residential type deals with leading private owners or REITs where we'll ground lease or we'll contribute our land and they'll build residential on vacant parcels or maybe a vacant box or two. So I think it's a definitely an amenity. And as you see here, even in New York, even the office world is seeing that as a way to drive their occupancy. I think two great examples would be Manhattan West by Brookfield and one Vanderbilt by SL Green. I mean, these are leaders of what they do in the office world. And They've built tremendous, tremendous assets that are very well leased. A lot of it was digitally enabled and and forward-leaning and also just a great amenities with retail on the base. 
So let's stay with that for a moment, Brian. You mentioned that in many of your open-air centers, you're looking to put additional uses on that land. Uh, multifamily is the one you mentioned, maybe you're putting office. Is that a relatively new trend, and uh, do you see it continuing? I think it's kind of always been there. I think it's just heating up now more across the country now more than ever. Obviously, in certain parts of the country, the yields are more attractive for us to do it. But I do see this continuing. And I see this continuing too with potentially lab science and data and biotech. And I think it's just going to be a blending of creating what's best for that piece of real estate. Some of that could be retail. Some of that could be office or lab science or residential. But I think the key thing is we're retail experts. We're going to partner with residential experts or lab science or office. We're not going to do that ourselves. We're going to partner. Brian just brought up, Lisa, about uh, essentially the highest and best use of the real estate, whether it be retail, multifamily, or otherwise. When you're looking at a typical open-air center, you're looking at the tenant mix. And the tenant mix could be a combination of restaurants, uh, apparel stores, uh, other forms of retail. How are you looking at the highest and best use of the retail component, taking experience into consideration? Well, I think the experience, um, probably the most overused word in our industry right now, but it's so critical. And it starts with the project first, creating a place that's a draw in itself that you want to be. That's what's getting people from out behind the computer. People want to be with people. So they want to be out and about and enjoy that environment. But it also goes into the retailer. Retail should be drama, theater, experience, engagement, all those things, but it starts with the outside first and then goes into the retail. So the merchandising strategy is frankly so complicated in that you always have to merge what's on trend with what's the right fit for the project and the demographic and the submarket and all of those things coming together. And as we've counseled our clients not to react to short-term trends either, uh, but to look at a long-term focus. And so in retail, when you look at some of the ones that have done a great job of creating theater, even starting back with Williams-Sonoma when they did their store, when it was such theater to go in there and enjoy, and there's cooking demonstrations and engagement from a long time ago. And then there's people like Nike who start it well before you get into the store. They're building that community with their fitness apps, their running apps. They're building all of that engagement before you ever even get to the store. One of the concepts we talk about from this theater or experience is the concept of credit versus cool. And credit is, everybody wants the highest credit tenants in the space, but you got to think about the foot traffic, the cool factor. Does that resonate with you, Brian? And how do you balance the two terms? There's an art, right? I mean, it definitely resonates. Just like you're really not going to have 100% of your cash flows coming from experiential or no credit tenants, I personally think it's that local experiential, that theater tenant that Lisa was talking about, which makes a lot of the centers. So it's a balance of having the credit, and that could be your Whole Foods or TJ Maxx, but also 10% or 20% of your cash flows coming from that local or regional tenant that just knows that community very well. And it's just that special ingredient or that special topping that differentiates that center 
from the others. I mean, it's really our job as landlords, the tenants are our artists, right? Our job is to bring the most amount of people to the venues. How do we do that? It's tenant mix, it's marketing events, it's engagement with the community. And that local tenancy and that regional tenancy is a big makeup of who we are. Lisa, you're advising landlords every day on this very question. And um, I'm the first to admit I love restaurants and places to hang out. But uh, this is not to slight our friends in the restaurant business. They're a much tougher business uh, than many other businesses we deal with, certainly from a credit and their durability and the TIs you got to put in. So, Lisa, given where we are today with the omni-channel competition with the Internet, has the percentage of experience inclusive of restaurants gone up? And do you think it will continue to go up? Or do you think you might see other uses that might be more traditional? I think the restaurants won't go down. I think they're critical. That the restaurant as part of a merchandising strategy is critical. But we're looking for those COVID trends that are here to stay versus the short term, as we've talked about. And the higher TI packages and even landlord packages have certainly soared during this time. I will say there wasn't such a huge hit on the rents as much as it was concessions. And we are past that point in most of our projects here, certainly. The restaurant piece, it's working with the restaurants with proven track records, proven sales. And it's also landlords and tenants working together and looking at projected realistic sales volumes and occupancy cost and uh, market rents all merged in there and working together. It's not just restaurants, though. You know, there's entertainment type tenants that we're seeing a lot of many types of entertainment, you know, the golf concepts, all kinds of um, activity, bowling, blah, blah, blah. There's many different kinds, but the restaurants are key, both on the office and in the retail part of the mix. Well, it's interesting you mentioned bowling, Lisa, because I remember when I was a very young lawyer in this business, we used to have these restrictive covenants in our leases that would preclude things like bowling alleys, that would preclude other things that were considered to be uh, bad for the other tenants. So, Brian, to you, are we seeing less of those types of covenants today? Are we seeing more bowling alley and other types of uses that previously were shunned upon? It comes down to the center, and it's very broad. In the tighter parked areas, tenants will continue to dig their heels on them. For the larger centers where maybe a lucky strike or or another bowling use could be taking out a Macy's or JCPenney, there'll be much more flexibility uh, for that. It just comes down to the real estate, and it comes down to the adjacency for the, for the parking lot for the, for the retailers. It's all about parking too. And a lot of those concepts have shrunk in size, which helps on those issues merging with the anchor tenant restrictions. Well, a lot of these concepts also have merged together. So bowling alleys were probably a disfavored use in parks because they had bars there in addition to just people bowling. But you go to a Dave and Buster's today, it's got a bar in addition to video games. So I think what you're seeing is mergers of uses to be able to combine maybe some elements that might have been disfavored before uh, with the better elements that people want that create foot traffic. Yeah, that's well said. I mean, inside the four walls for the entertainment users has definitely changed. I mean, you look at even theaters now with movie theaters, with the restaurant components, that entertainment business has certainly changed dramatically. So speaking of alternatives... The biggest alternative, of course, in retail is 
do I do bricks and mortar or do I do internet? But really, I think what we're seeing now is the omni-channel approach, uh, clicks to bricks, uh, and other things where people are coming back. In fact, there was an article in the Wall Street Journal uh, 10 days ago that talked about the, the increasing importance of bricks and mortar to internet retailers. Lisa, you're nodding your head. You agree. <laughs> I do. I think someday that word even omni-channel starts fading away. It's just part of being in retail. And so you look at the stores that open bricks and mortar store, their online sales go up. It's all interchangeable. It's cheaper for retailers to ship from bricks and mortar. People want to be out in stores. They want all of it. It's satisfying the customer for multiple, multiple channels uh, but I think bricks and mortar does not go away. You look at our Black Friday sales, and I think those numbers are going to go up because our season was so much longer. That was just the day. I don't think retail goes away. Foot traffic is up, uh, not yet over 2019, but it's heading in the right direction. The numbers for Black Friday and for the broader season are skewed this year for so many reasons. First of all, it's the year over year compared with 2020, but also it's the supply chain issue. There were a lot of big retailers this year who were not putting on sales or stocking their shelves quite as much as they've done in the past, simply because they couldn't get the goods. So Lisa, were you seeing that in some of your landlord tenants? Definitely. Our poor retailers are just getting hammered from all different directions. Um, but I do think the in-store profit probably increases because they're not having to do as many deep discounts. So a positive slant on that too. And I think you can look at, you know, I saw Vicky's, they didn't get their supply and they're down, you know, 46% off of, you know, ordering their fall inventory. But then you look at Walmart and Target and Costco, which I think are the three behemoths along with Amazon. And they're like, we're going to be stocked frontwards and backwards, upwards and sideways throughout the holidays. So it goes back down to, to like the balance sheets and the supply chains that, you know, tremendous retailers have been building up over the last several years. Well, I think what happened during the crisis was that the traditional supply chains in many places broke. And now we're going to see, I think, even more of an expansion on the uses of traditional retail centers, such as hybridization of stores where it's retail in the front and it's industrial in the back, or having service components like a Best Buy as well. So Brian, are you seeing that in some of your stores where the retailers are trying to become more of a hybrid store? We're seeing some, but I think that we were seeing some before too. Again, if you look at the Best Buys and Dick's of the world, you know, some of these larger retailers, I think they were onto this, I mean, several years ago. Pandemic forced that issue and accelerated that issue. Uh, and really, it really allowed every retailer to be better digital retailers. No one wished the pandemic would have happened at all. But what it did for our world is allowed for all retailers to really embrace and be digital retailers. Now, that for some could be going from zero to 10% or from some going to 100 to 150%. But Spencer, we're seeing that with small, but we're seeing just a huge you know, shift with the Best Buys and Dick's and, and even TJ's or Costco's or uh, Home Depot's of just how important those stores are. Target is doing very little industrial leasing, but they're open to buy for stores is through the roof. From their mouths, it's the largest it's ever been. Why? 
obviously their margins are <laughs> much better if they can supply the customer in person, but they can supply the customer online as well from that store. And I think the definition of what a online purchase is, is becoming gray. If we are going to continue to blur the lines of bricks and mortar, omni-channel, or other things where it's not clear what's online or not, should we change the structure of leases? Because right now, leases are, you got your base rent, you've got your percentage rent, which is traditionally frowned upon, but then you've got internet sales in the trade area in which the sale occurs. So since I'm speaking to a leading landlord rep and a leading landlord, should landlords get a piece of the sales on the internet? Yes. Lisa, what's your point of view? <laughs> you know my answer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think, I think it would be yes. And I think that's just the battle of, of it, it really shouldn't say the battle. It should be the partnership between landlord and the retailer and really defining, because it's outside the four walls now. And really defining that trade area in that submarket through zip codes. And it's a healthy conversation we're having with our retailer partners almost daily as we're re-engineering the leases, you know, to incorporate that. But in my mind, it absolutely should be included. Lisa? Agreed. Everything, Brian. So so let's turn now to, to formats. And Brian, uh, you mentioned that most of your 70% plus or minus of your portfolio is grocery anchored, but uh, the other 30% are just large format centers that may not have a grocer in it. I think grocery anchored stores are fantastic and their pricing is better than pre-COVID in many levels for the best, uh, the best centers. But the area that has not fully recovered yet is the uh, open air, not grocery anchored, as you call them, large format centers. Some people call them power centers. I'll go one step further. I believe it might be the best buy in all of real estate today, given the spread and the cap rates there versus other real estate options. Brian, what's your point of view? You know, I'm just a real estate person where I just think it all comes down to the real estate. And I think there tends to be, in a lot of industries, a herd mentality. Uh, today, it's it's grocer in the retail world. And we love grocery. Uh, it's got to be the right grocery. As we all know, there's great grocery centers and there's poor grocery centers. It's picking the right one and, and with the right market-dominant grocer. With that said, I do agree with you. We like to say, you know, maybe we can, I'm working through copywriting, so maybe I can't uh, call this yet, but I'll say it anyway, is credit centers instead of power centers. Uh, you look at the cash flows of your T, and the credit profiles of TJX and Dix and Home Depot and Lowe's, and you look at the credit on the rent roll from those tenants and you compare the cap rates compared to, their corporate bonds and where they're trading at, it's a massive, massive yield and there's great arbitrage to be had there. With that said, there's great credit centers and there's poor credit centers. Um, it's having that right center with the right demographics, with the right sales coming from those tenants. We're adding on a lot of grocery to these centers, to that everyday use, a lot. I mean, I would say the majority of our leasing large box centers, anything over 25,000 square feet, is coming from grocery, wholesale, and home improvement. They're going into a lot of these power centers. 
So what does that do for cap rate, right? So I think there's huge, huge, huge opportunity in that sector. We did $500 million of buys in the last several months, and a couple of them were truly just power centers that we believe we can add new tenants or we like that tenancy in place now and just got it at a very attractive yield. So we're fans. It's just got to be the right real estate with the right tenancy. So let's touch upon a couple of other hot topics that have been in our industry for the last several months. Uh, One of them is COVID-related. And I know it's new, but the Omicron variant um, has been top of the headlines. Anything you're hearing from landlords or tenants on that, Lisa? Not yet. Brian? Yeah, too new. Um, Nothing as of yet. Well, I just got back from Europe. And one thing I heard in every meeting I went to, uh, much louder than I'm hearing here, is ESG, uh, which used to be primarily an office thing. It was primarily required in office buildings. They're saying, no, it's in everything now. We want all of our real estate, industrial, retail, hotels, otherwise, to be at the top of the line for that. So, Lisa, what are you what are you hearing from your clients? Yeah, I think we'll see more of that. I mean, ESG is so many different things, right? It's uh, sustainability, it's social, it's causes, it's all kinds of things. I think the one thing that I've seen, especially started during COVID, is that those things have to be authentic and real and not a marketing ploy. That is one thing that rang loud and clear. From the retailer's standpoint, I'm amazed. Uh, My daughter is a Gen Z, 24 years old. And when I ask her about cool brands, it starts with the cool things they do as a company. Her, her friends, they expect this. And they also, I will watch that age group, they will also blast people on social media when they're not doing it. I hope it's a way that we all end up doing business. And just like Omnichannel, maybe ESG isn't, isn't such a thing, that it's something we're doing always as a matter of course in business. But I think many retailers are doing a phenomenal job, whether it's recycling, causes, um, really meaningful, and I totally applaud them. So Brian, pushing the ESG question, I was at a uh, grocery anchored center over the weekend and I saw for the first time two EV charging stations right next to the store. So we'd love to hear what you're doing on ESG and specifically on EV charging stations, solar panels or otherwise. Yeah, ESG, I think there'll be more advancement. It'll be more of the norm a year, two years from now even, than not. Uh, When I first came to the company in 2018, it wasn't a focus and we brought it to the forefront. You're right, when you go to Europe, it's really one of the first questions you ask. And I think here, it's becoming one of the first or second questions people ask, including, you know, and thankful to the likes of BlackRock and, and Larry Fink of what he did to really bring it on the forefront for public and private companies. So from the E perspective, that ranges from a lot, from investments on global warming to, to reducing carbon footprints. In our proprietary model, we actually impact the score based on if that municipality is in the global warming zones or flooding zones or all of that, right? I can go on and on from environmental, but it's going to dramatically improve our communities. So I think that's a win-win. I think the S is something that the the U.S. has been doing for a while. That's just a focus on diversity. It's becoming much more now. The wellness of the employees, 
and really philanthropic of how we give back uh, to the world and, and, and to our communities. And then the governance is really strong governance for our shareholders, and that's internal, that's external, that's with boards, all that. But ESG is is massive and is only going to increase uh, literally by <laughs> every day. As far as EV, we are we are doing a number of deals with like Teslas of the world, and you see in this infrastructure bill, there's going to be credits now for consumers buying EV cars. I think this is going to be one of the main headlines for our industry for years to come. So I bought an electric car a few months ago, so I've done the up and down 95 to Connecticut and back a little bit. And the thing, one, how great making it easier. They're becoming more and more. There aren't as many as we'd all like to see still, but for shopping center owners to help the community and have that available. But also... It's a captive audience for 30 to 40 minutes just for landlords to take advantage of that and the amenities and making it easy. I haven't seen advertisement yet. I'm sure it's coming at the stations of what's available right by me. I've got 30, 40 minutes and things you can knock out. So I think it's an opportunity for landlords as well. Let's go back to the S thing for just a moment because I think you you said it correctly, Brian. Much of the S that we are seeing in our industry is primarily being dealt with from a hiring practice standpoint, diversity and otherwise. What we're not seeing as much in our industry is people going one step out on the risk spectrum to putting a grocery store in what's known as a food wasteland. Um, We actually had on this show uh, a few months ago, we had a long debate about that, about why don't you put that grocery store there? And their answer was, we need to get the same return on investment on an ESG dollar as we do on a capital expense of any other type. And I guess my question is, do we see the world ever changing there? Do we see it through public-private partnerships, tax incentives, or otherwise, that large institutional investors can invest in some of these areas that are emerging today, maybe outside the scope of their investment profile? Uh, Brian, do you have a point of view on that? Yeah, I think it's important. We have shareholders in our job is to steward their dollars. And while stewarding into an area like that is important and very important, um, having that right return on investment is as important as well. Now, there are cities that could create TIFs where you would be able to have that same yield or higher. So I think that those public-private partnerships are really important and to be true partners with that municipality and to bring infrastructure, to bring a lot of employment to neglected areas. There's a lot of people that are doing a lot of work in that field and are doing an exceptional job. And just for our listeners' sake, TIF stands for Tax Incremental Financing, which essentially is a deal that the local municipality will have with the developer that if they build in a certain place, they'll get a tax break for a certain period of time uh, in exchange for doing it. And sometimes those tax credits can be sold as real currency for their job. Spence, real fast before you, and a, and a feel-good story is I sit on the board, I actually chair the board of Autism Speaks, and and I had the pleasure to meet with this coffee shop owner that's very thriving in Paris. And they have neurodiverse employees. And they're just crushing it to the point where they can't find enough labor. <laughs> they can't find enough real estate. 
office owners in Europe are leasing them the space free and that they're coming into New York and are undergoing a, a deal in Times Square and throughout the city where that's the S in its finest, right? Because it's an ecosystem of applying philanthropic, applying job opportunities to the neurodiverse community that maybe wouldn't be working. And it's applying to that ecosystem where the patrons, it's their favorite place to go. And I think that's the thing of ESG is it could be, um, it could be very large obstacle to, uh, to embrace, if you will, but it's a beautiful one to embrace and doing it right. It just, it just absolutely makes the businesses better makes the organizations better, makes the employees better, makes the communities better. Brian, uh, as the CEO of uh, one of the largest owners of open-air retail in the United States, uh, the space has always been evolving. Put on your crystal ball hat or put your crystal ball in front of you and say five years from now, looking back, what are the big changes you think you're going to see in retail and what are some of the things you think are going to stay the same? I think, as, as we've talked about a lot on the omni-channel, I think that word goes away and that's just part of retail. It's going to be a hybrid of digital and bricks and mortar. Um, I think the larger retailers will continue to get larger and there'll be more consolidation. But I think as we've seen the acceleration post-COVID, it forced everybody to be better digital retailers. And I think that is just going to tend to increase. And I think five years from now, people will look at us and say, we're almost more of a blend of industrial (laughs) to retail than digital to retail because the retail storefront serving as that true last mile. Yeah, I think future is bright and we're well on the road to recovery. All the metrics are there um, that sure feels good to read and see and watch. I said earlier about the Omnichannel, I think it's just going to be more the same, but by the vast majority will still be in-store sales, but the lines will be even more blurred. I think there will be some repurposing of retail. I think, as Brian said, everybody got better during COVID. Uh, not Not a lesson we wanted to learn, but everyone got better at what they do. They had to. And I think part of it was we kind of kicked the can down the road on some projects that maybe shouldn't have been retail or less retail. I think there's going to be some repurposing of that that will be well received in the market, whether it's uh, residential office in the projects that weren't that. It's harder than it seems, but um, I think we'll see more of that as well. Great. Well, thank you, Lisa. Thank you, Brian. And on behalf of the weekly take, uh, it was my pleasure to have two of the leading experts in retail in the world, frankly, Brian Harper, president and CEO of RPT Realty, one of the leading owners of open air retail in the United States. Brian, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you, Spencer. Thanks, Lisa. I enjoyed it. And Lisa, uh, my good friend, executive vice president, uh, one of the leading landlord rep brokers in retail in the greater Washington, D.C. area. Lisa, thank you for joining the show. Thank you, Spencer and Brian. Such a pleasure. For more information on the retail sector, please visit our website at cbre.com slash the weekly take. You can also browse the aisles of CBRE Research for the latest insights on all the angles we've covered. 
The latest is CBRE's newly published viewpoint on reverse logistics, the supply chain for returns. That's because this year's strong holiday shopping season is sure to put that part of our industrial infrastructure to work. You can also find our recent brief on 2021 holiday shopping trends and hot off the presses this week, our real estate outlook for 2022 and more. All that research and analysis is available at cbre.com slash insights. And speaking of the new year, our 2021 programming year is drawing to a close, but we will be here as usual next week to celebrate with a retrospective and look ahead. In the meantime, thank you for listening. As always, we'd appreciate it if you'd share the show and subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you listen. Thanks again for joining us. I'm Spencer Levy. Be smart, be safe, be well.